David Rossi had it all. Career, lots of money, the right house in the right neighborhood, until it all came crashing down around him. Life left him literally on the floor, barely able to walk. His journey up from divorce, financial ruin, and damaged family relationships was the basis of his book, The Imperative Habit, Seven Non-Spiritual Practices Towards Spiritual Behavior. He is now passionate about helping others and his three children. In our conversation, we talk about love, loss, and the need to accept everything as it is. At We Care Spa, we believe that if we follow Susanna's path and reconnect with those sometimes forgotten parts of ourselves, we can become whole again. Today, I'm thrilled to share the fast with David Rossi. Dave, welcome to the fast. Patrick, thank you so much. So happy to be here. It is such an honor to have you. I have to say, I loved your book. Ah, thank you. I read it. I read it in two sittings. It was so readable. <laughs> and so the concepts were really big, but the ease of reading made it easy to navigate the book. And I loved the book. Um, and I have to say, I was, I was talking to some people the other day and I quoted one of your habits. Oh, great. I, I love did. it. I love it. I did. What, what, I did. What, what more can you ask for, for an author? And I, and I was like, we have to accept everything. <laughs> we, have yeah. to ex- we have to accept what is. Yeah. And I was actually in a meeting with my team here. And we were, we were talking about business. And I said, the first thing we have to do is accept what is. And then we can make a decision yeah. based upon accepting what the truth is. And I think what's interesting about that is, I said this in the book, it's not that you accept it forever. Right. It's not that you're not trying to grow and make things better or improve your life. It's that this is where it is right now. Today. The light is red. Doesn't mean it won't be green in some time in the future. But right now, this is the landscape. This is the playing field. This is the chessboard. And let's make a decision not trying to manipulate what we think we're seeing. Let's accept it and not let our emotion block mm. real reality. You know what I mean? It's freedom. I think it's freedom if you can do that. It is. And I have to tell you that I learned this, um, that habit through accepting my own vulnerabilities, accepting mm. my own weaknesses. And I always say, you, the one thing you have to know is what you don't know. Mm. And that's acceptance. Accepting that you're bad at things, accepting that you don't know things, accepting that you need help, accepting that this sucks and the situation I'm in sucks. And, yep. and if I sugarcoat it or pretend it's something different, I'm not really gonna take it on the way it really needs to be taken on. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that you start the book with a quote from Ram Das, which I think is pretty awesome. Mm. But you say in the beginning, you say, Looking back at the life I lived years ago, I see a man who seemingly had it all. I ran my own company since I was 28 years old. I married a beautiful woman. Together we brought three children into the world. And for 16 years, I ran a business with annual sales of 30 to $35 million. I collected all the hallmarks of the desired life. A big house in the hills, bordering Silicon Valley, vacation homes, cars, boats, private schools for the kids, and exotic vacations for us all. Only one thing was missing. I wasn't happy. I was much the opposite. And so <laughs> when, I, when I read that, I had two questions. Okay. One, maybe one and one A question, but two questions. And my first question was, how did it all go so wrong? And my second wow. question was, and why wasn't it enough? 
Well, I think it was always wrong. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the whole book is, is, is takes the reader on a journey of what we think is happiness, that we think happiness are things. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I didn't know any different. And, I, and I, when I wrote that paragraph, I realized I wanted to write it for other people to realize that they may not have gotten it either. Mm-hmm. Because the, the standard that everybody measured happiness on where I came from and what, what I see in the world a lot today are things right. and possessions and um, things we collect, the, the, the hallmarks that we cross off of a list that we have. And so, so I, I think for me to realize that it was always wrong was a whole realization of the book. And, and it wasn't that it wasn't good enough because all those things are great and all those things are wonderful. But the, the, tra- the, the transom is if you need those things to be happy. Mm. The transom is, those are great things to have. Like who wouldn't want a nice house? I mean, I'm much happier in a nicer house than, than, than not, but it can't actually mean anything more than just that. Right. It can't be the de facto reason for why I am happy or why I'm not happy. Happiness is internal. And until you realize you don't need those things, you won't have those things. And if you do have those things and you're not happy, they're not quite as sterling or as shiny as they mm. would be if you don't actually need them. It's, it's, uh, and I think you allude to it in the book, it's, it's the golden handcuff yeah. metaphor. Yeah. It's shiny and it's pretty, but it'll hold you down. Right. And, and there's freedom in that release of, of things as objects for happiness. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you keep on collecting things and, you know, more isn't enough. And so you keep on looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And at some point you realize, what am I doing? And that's mm-hmm. what happened to me. You also said in the book, you quoted... Tolstoy, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) And you quote Ivan Illich, the death of Ivan Illich, and you say, the quote that he says is, what if my whole life was lived wrong? And that that made me think, is there such a thing as a right or wrong path? Well, I think in all spiritual work, there are nuances to things. And so, you know, any spiritual teacher would tell you that there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no bad. It's just a, you know, a vector. Right. Okay. So, but to get to that point of understanding that there are no opposites, you kind of have to use words that people can understand. Right. And that quote held a lot of importance for me because it was that quote. And it was also Eckhart Tolle's quote, don't fear the outcome. That Mm -hmm. really was a catalyst for me leaving my marriage of 15 years because I knew I wasn't happy but the reason why I stayed in a life that I didn't really like was because I was afraid of the outcome. Mm. So the, the decision-making process for me at that time was computating all the situations and scenarios. What happens if I leave? What happens if I change my life? What happens if I hit reset? What happens? That computation of, of listening to Tolstoy's quote right. and ejecting from where I was was really about fear was really about the outcome. The outcome, the perceived outcome, the possible outcome drove my decision-making process. And when I realized that if fear was absent, what decisions would I make differently? Mm. And literally I walked down the stairs that night and I told my wife of 15 years, this is it, I'm done, this is it, I'm sorry. How did she receive that? She didn't believe me. Really? <laughs> yeah. She thought that something was wrong with me. You know, you're depressed. You're going through a midlife crisis or something wrong with you. I said, maybe you could be right, but this is the path that I want to explore because the decision 
making process was no longer about the fear of a possible outcome. It was, I knew this was the wrong life. I knew this was the wrong woman. I knew this was the wrong relationship. And the sooner I can get that over, I can put myself on the right path. Like Tolstoy, Mm -hmm. he lived a life that everyone else told him he should live. And I felt like that. I felt, you know, ripped of my dreams and ripped of my passions to Mm -hmm. make everybody else happy and make decisions based on what they told me would be good or what would be bad. And I didn't listen to myself or my own heart. When you took the walk down those stairs to talk to your wife, that journey was born of your physical journey with your back. And then slowly rehabilitating yourself, the walking, in the beginning to read. You said you never read in your life. No, no. I was like, my dad was a lawyer and he'd always tease me, you know, grab a book, you should read. He read a lot as a, as a lawyer. He loved vacation was books for him. And I, I, cause right. I would fall asleep. I didn't retain anything. I was uninterested in things. And I guess this burning desire to improve my life, having, you know, gotten so low, Something happened. Like reading just kind of came to me. It was like my savior. It was it was such an important thing. And I, there was a quote that when the student is ready, the masters will appear. And the masters mm-hmm. to me were books. And books just started coming to me and resonating with me and helping me. And so at that point, I couldn't get enough. I was just had this voracious appetite of learning and understanding. And then it was like this incredible explosion. Why didn't someone tell me these things sooner? Like how was all this information out there? And I never knew it. Mm-hmm. But do you think, and, 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 and I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but do you think when I was reading the book, I was having a conversation with you the whole time because I, I recognized a lot of myself in your story. And I wondered, there were two things that came up for me. One was regret. And is there such a thing as regret? And the other thing that came up for me was could you have written this book? Could you have impacted the lives you've impacted without going through all of that? So was there for you, and you don't use this language in the book, but was there for you gratitude about the journey that you had and the really rough, I mean, you lose everything. Yeah. But you gain the world. Yeah. You want to take that. Yeah. But is it just, this is part of, that this is part of the path of life. I think it was my Angelou who said, I wouldn't change my journey for anything now, for nothing now. Well, the emotion of regret is real. I mean, as a, as a human, as a homo sapien, we have hormones and neurotransmitters that create the emotion of regret. Mm-hmm. That happens automatically. I can't Control. not, right. You know, where I am with my beliefs at the moment and whatever happens, that's a, an active emotion. Mm-hmm. But it's what I do with that emotion afterwards that, that shows a transition and allows me to focus on gratitude because I wouldn't change anything. There's absolutely no regret. Now, could life have been easier had I not been so dense and so stubborn um, and followed the clues sooner or listened to my intuition sooner? Things might have happened a little faster for me, right? right. right? Um, maybe not as bad as, and as much pain. And it, and it kept taking a worse and worse blow to me in my life for me to stand up and take notice. And hmm. so I don't think you have to go through all of that pain I think you can observe it in others and be inspired by, by realizing that other people have pain and other people have suffered and say, okay, maybe I am too. And that's the most difficult thing about helping people is the awareness that has to come with it. That people say, oh no, I'm fine. Oh no, I'm fine. And you know, they probably think they are. I thought I was, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. Mm. And I say in the book that I didn't think 
I really had any problems because I didn't think solutions existed to my problems. Mm -hmm. I thought the solutions were, oh, I need a better employee as a manager, or I need a better operations person, or I need more date nights with my wife, or I need more exercise to be in better shape so I feel better about myself. I thought those were the solutions which those were all dead ends. And, and that's why my life got tougher and tougher. Mm. And so I didn't really think there was a whole lot wrong with me. So I didn't spend the time getting better until I got to the bottom. Really to the bottom. Like, really. You couldn't walk. I couldn't walk. I had a, a re-injured myself. I had slipped a disc in football in college, which ended my college football career. And then I was overweight and unhappy. And I'm like, I need to do something. So eating ice cream. Eating ice cream. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I feel you, man. With uh, chocolate you. chips and milk on top. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> in front of the TV. And I said, look, I got to get in shape. Like this might be a key to, to feeling better and finding happiness. And then I re-injured my back trying to heal myself. And I I uh, was relatively paralyzed. I got the phone call from the doctor that said, if you can't use the toilet, go to the ER. And I'm like, I am 100% going to use that toilet because I'm not going to the ER. And it was that painful and that you know, debilitating. And then I got a shot, uh, epidural, which mm -hmm. was a cortical steroid in my spine. Um, healed it for a little while, but it didn't cure it. And then I scheduled surgery. Uh, February 29th, leap, leap year, 2016, I had a double disectomy scheduled and a double Oof. anectomy and I canceled it and the doctor's like you can't heal this and I said well I can always reschedule yeah so that was that was a low point and a high point it was low point to hit that bottom but it was a high point to find a way out of it so as you are laying on the floor of your closet <laughs> taking 45 minutes to stretch to even be able to put on your clothes to kind of walk out the door to go, to go to your work. What are you thinking? How did I get here? Like, are you serious? Like, what, what is happening to me? How mm -hmm. did my life get to this point? How did I work so hard to do the opposite and land so squarely opposite of what I tried to do? And that was kind of a, a moment to realize that it had very little to do with my effort and my tenacity or my intelligence or my work ethics and a lot more to do with a lot of other things that are much more subtle and much more esoteric and much more internal. And, and that's kind of what started me on this path. Would you have survived if you hadn't found the imperative habit? Yeah. I mean, I was a, I was a fighter. I was a survivor. I would have done what I had done for the last 15 years. Just, you know, pull up my, my shoes and put them on and put my bootstraps and go after it and just keep keep working and keep taking hits and keep taking hits. And I think a lot of people do that. I think if anything happens to you that is uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that's hard, that is an invitation to fix it. And I don't mean like bop it back in the nose. I mean to really investigate why it's hard from a psyche perspective, from a, you know, there's a great quote by a, by a Greek philosopher named Epictetus that says, it's not events that make you angry. It's your beliefs in them that does. Mm. And so if you have something going on, I mean, you know, internally, right. not that the world knows. I mean, we're all really good at hiding shit, aren't we? I mean, oh. we hide a lot of stuff. Oh, and, yeah. and I think if you have that internal conversation with yourself and you're saying, hey, this is hard. What's going on? That is literally like an invitation in the mail to say, 
Take inventory of what you believe. Take inventory of something deeper and beyond what you see and really learn about it. Really put in the effort to understand why you're having this conversation with yourself. Because hmm. it's not an accident. We just ignore it. Right. You know? So we've been talking for 10 minutes about the imperative habit. What is the imperative habit? Well, it's a series of practices. And I think it's really important that we talk about practice. Yes. Because this doesn't happen unless you practice. And I don't, and, and when I kind of hit that alarm bell that is practice, what that means is you keep on reinforcing what you want to believe. You keep mm. on reinforcing what you know to be true and what, we, what you know helps you and works for you. And if you don't practice it to have it, then it's just a fleeting moment. It's like the quote that you read on social media. You go, aha, I resonate with that. And then an hour later, you're like, what was that quote? Did I take a screenshot of that? Like, where, 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 where did I say that? Right? <laughs> I do it all the time. I'm right. like <laughs> scrolling through my yeah. iPhone. So you want to yeah. live, live that quote, then you have to practice it. You have to put it into, into practice, into your daily life. And maybe these great quotes that you read make a lot of sense. And you just don't know how it connects to your life, your life situation. And the imperative habit is these seven practices that, you're, that I intend to help people put into habit to improve their lives, to find happiness. And there are lots of, lots of ways to the same, you know, Shangri-La, but, but the seven habits that I you know, kind of put together, I aggregated from other things that I read, other experiences that I had from really profound authors like Eckhart Tolle, mm -hmm. like uh, Dr. David Hawkins. I mean, so you take these people's work and I realized that, wow, this is really great, Power of Now, but it really could use a little bit of this over here. And then I kind of yeah. took this little bit over here from Michael Singer and the Untethered Soul and said, hey, you combine these two things and it makes kind of a more powerful synergy of ideas. And so that's kind of why, why I wrote the book. Mm. And that's the imperative habit, those seven habits. I struggled with the no judgment. What's We're just habit? tied to accepting what is. You want, yeah, you're right, right. It's <laughs> kind mean, of the same habit. It's right. the same habit, but executed yeah. kind of in a different way. Like, I don't know. I, I think I struggled with it because I, I feel like we live in a constant state of judgment. And, that, and, I, and I, I guess we talked earlier about how the concepts of the book are not easy to grasp, you know, even though the language may be facile for people to, to read the book. But I, I wasn't sure I was grasping what, what you meant. I mean, there's judgment, there's discernment, there's also knowing what you believe to be right from wrong. Um, well, so, I I so I struggled with the, I struggled with the no judgment piece. Cause I think it's just a part of, we live in judgment. Well, I think that says a little bit about your programming as an right. individual. Okay. Right. And you know, it's a difficult concept to grasp, but all judgment is self judgment, right? Because you really can't think that somebody else is judging you about something unless you already think that about yourself. You can't project that on someone else. Oh, they must think that I'm lazy or they must think that I'm you know, not so this or I'm too much of that. You can't think they think that about you unless you already think that about yourself. Mm. And, and judgment is interesting because it's a really powerful spiritual practice for a couple of reasons. So the way I look at spirituality is something non-physical, not something woo-woo, although it can be, not something religious, although it can be. I look at it as the non-physical. And I look at the, the physical kind of like exercise. Mm. So if you're exercising and you're tired, your body gives you feedback, lactic acid, you're registering your heart rate, your, your mind says to you, you're tired. 
and yeah. a different voice comes in at the same time and says, you can go do more, you can keep going. That's a spiritual moment. That's a non-physical voice in your head. Right. It's being created not from the feedback of your body, but something different. And we think the voices are both us, but they come from different places mm -hmm. of us. And so judgment comes from a very physical place, a very programmed place. I was always taught that I was lazy by my parents. I was always told, oh, you're lazy, you'll never amount to anything. And that mm -hmm. programming sticks with us. That's a very physical program. It's like a computer in our head and, mm -hmm. and we were told something enough. We believe it. And so judgment or, or the opposite of judgment, not judging, is distinctively the practice of being spiritual. Mm, okay. It's also judgment needs a standard to be compared against. Right. And so where did that standard come from? Where is this universal standard? Standard is also a standard that we've created. Okay, so we use society as well. We use the majority. Like the majority has tenure or, or truth. Right. But the majority can be a mob. And we use those things to create this imaginary standard through our own positionalities and then we throw it on ourselves we throw it on somebody else and then we use that standard to compare and judge and that whole process is not spiritual it's mm. all body it's all physical and it's all meant to help you try to find comfort and survival within your own skin mm, mm -hmm. and there's more to it than that when we distinctively go against our body like exercise is when we distinctively grow it's interesting to me that you bring up spirituality because as I was reading the book, I was like, okay, the book is called Seven Non-Spiritual Practices Towards Spiritual Behavior for Happiness, Health, Love, and Success. And my question, it's almost contradictory because I was like, this is a spiritual book. Yeah. I mean, you, you literally talk about faith in the book. <laughs> like, yeah. it's one of the practices. Yeah. Have faith. Yeah. And so, and now that, now that you explain it as getting it into your body in a different kind of way than faith or than religious practice. It kind of makes sense to me, but I want you to go deeper into why you specifically said this is a non-spiritual practice towards spiritual behavior. Is that even possible? Well, prior to this book, I wasn't a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would almost, um, prior to this book, think that some of spirituality or religion or the dogma of a religion was somewhat off-putting and had a negative taste in my mouth mm -hmm. before I wrote the book. And the practices are very distinctively human and very distinctively non-dogmatic and very distinctively everyday things that can be used. And I didn't want to pigeonhole the practices because they're great not to judge, except you know, don't be afraid of the outcome. Love and compassion, Love and, compassion. and have faith. And, and, you know, faith was an interesting one because it's also not a dogmatic thing. I mean, it can be, and it's been adopted as something dogmatic, but it really is the belief that something exists without seeing or experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing to practice, that the people before us who have found success or have found these places in life, and I don't just mean with my book or what I teach, anybody you see, right. they're just a, a beacon that it's achievable. Mm. And we need to have faith that if we haven't felt it or we haven't seen it, that it's still achievable. And so when you are, you know, confronted with difficulties or you're judging your own journey and you're saying, hey, this is hard. What do I do next? What do I do? That's where faith and that habit really comes into play and say, look, others have done it. I can do it too. And it's a really important practice 
to make a habit, to keep on saying that. I can do it. Others have done it before me, and I can do it as well. You just mentioned fear, which is a theme in the book. And yeah. you talk about we make really bad decisions because we fear the outcomes of them. Yeah. Um, how do we stop doing that? It's programmed. Well, well, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with people about this where they say, oh, fear saved humanity and fear has made us who we are. And, and that's true. Because we say trust your fear. Like if, right. if, you, if you fear it, that's probably a legitimate yeah. thing, an emotion that you're experiencing. Fear is an invitation to lean in. Fear is an invitation to pay attention. Mm -hmm. But what happens with fear is it can also be an emotion. It can be a warning sign of, of stimulus or information that you're perceiving mm -hmm. with your experiences, with your knowledge, with your perceptivity, you know, which is great. But it can also be an emotion that fogs the windshield of your clarity. Do you really want something so bad? Desire is fear. Right. I need this. Because if I don't have it, I'm not whole. So I need this. I need this deal. I need this money. I need this love. I need this relationship. This is perfect for me. And when you have that desire and it crosses the line where you think it provides something for you, mm -hmm. then it's fear. And that fear typically always fogs your windshield, stops you from seeing clarity, and it, and it blocks your ability to, again, assess your beliefs. Mm. Because it's just a belief that you think you need that thing. And so fear can be good. You know, it's an invitation to lean in and listen, but we don't want it to consume our decision-making process. We don't want to make a decision based on a probable outcome. So that's when you say don't fear the outcomes. Don't, the fear of the outcome should not be in the decision-making process to me. Mm. It's, it's information, but it's not the decision maker. And you talk about when, so I studied acting at the Yale School of Drama 5,000 years ago, but we, we, we studied the practice of the Alexander Technique, which is all about, in, in the Cliff Notes version, the relationship between the head, the neck, and the spine, mm -hmm. and how we are all in fear, startle patterns, so we raise our ears, our head goes forward, and then you know what happens to your body over time when you do that. Um, but a huge part of that study, that practice, and it is a practice, is pausing before you move. Because the pause allows you a moment to calibrate your body, understand where you are. And if you're responding out of habit or fear, make a different choice. So that, that part of the book really resonated for me because I think that it was, it was, it's in my body, what you were talking about. And I think there's something in the, in the concept of pausing and giving yourself time to understand what's happening and what your response is going to be and whether your response is a programmed response or your authentic true response, right. which you advocate for right. in the book. Well, I, I talk about that. There's a very, you know, one main theme with the book is Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. and that's small oh, yes. gap in tight time between stimulus and response. Right. You have to be able to grab that small space of time between stimulus and response. And I think that's what you're just talking about is grabbing that pause. And for you, you train for that pause. Mm -hmm. And in the book, what I hope to convey is you grab that small moment in time before response and you implement a practice. That's actually my practice. For you, it was, you know, drop your shoulders, don't pull right. up your ears. That was your practice. Breathe. Breathe, right. <laughs> and, and I think for me, it was, what do I believe back to the Epictetus quote, what do I believe to be creating this response? Do I want to believe that? Do I want to believe this is hard? Do I want to believe that I'm bad at this? Do I want to believe mm. that I can't do this? What do I want to believe? Right. I've been programmed so many things. I want to undo that programming and now implement a new practice. 
And, and the reason why this is hard is because, you know, our neural pathways create patterns of behavior in right. our neurons. If you can't disrupt the signal, you can't create new neural pathways. And there's so many new and wonderful things to believe that we were never told as kids. Right. <laughs> and I'm now telling myself all the things that I want to tell myself and that I want to believe in. And over time, those things become neural pathways and new beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what it's all about is, is that small moment in time. Your kids, you have three kids. Mm -hmm. How have they handled this transition? Well, they, all, they all hate my beard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Dad. <laughs> you never had a beard when you, when you were babies, Dad. So why did you grow a beard? Um, and I always heard a quote, every beard has a story. And so I kind of yeah. like the beard. Um, you know, they think it's wonderful. I think um, at times they tease me for it because sometimes it doesn't suit them. So they'll tease me about it. But they've all really kind of embraced it. They asked for my help. They asked my opinion. Mm -hmm. I was actually flying down here with, with a, a college kid sitting next to me whose parents had put a lot of pressure on him to take over the family business and, you know, carry the family flag. And he was a tech person. They were in textiles. Anyway, so he, he followed his parents, you know, pressures and he became really unhappy and his, his aspect of the business failed. And he said to me, well, what would you do if your child wanted to be a musician and you knew he wasn't going to make any money, but he was following what he really loved? Mm. And I said, my son is a musician. He's in college <laughs> in Texas as a musician. And he said, and what do you think about that? And I said, I'm so happy for him that, that he can follow his dream and make himself happy mm. and not feel any pressure. And I, and I then said to him, it may, may have not been the best advice um, at his age. I said, your parents are going to respond however they're going to respond. And if you live the life that they want for you, then you won't live your own. Mm. So don't worry about making them upset because if you live their choices, then you're living their life and not yours. You just have to let go of not caring so much about upsetting them. They're going to be okay. You know, you talk in the book, um, and I've, when I was reading it, I was like, no one ever talks about this, but you talk about collateral damage and mm -hmm. people that you hurt yeah. as you evolve. And we don't normally talk about that. I mean, we say kind of glib things like, well, they're no longer in my life and I had to let them go. But there, when you talked about it, there was an emotional cost, it seems, on both sides for the people that you had to yeah. no longer have a relationship with if you were going to survive, literally survive. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I was living everyone else's life but my own, like Leo Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you let go of judgment, and when you embrace habit six, respond with love and compassion, mm -hmm. the way someone treats me doesn't dictate how I choose to treat them. And so if there is collateral damage and somebody is upset, I can aid them. I'm so sorry I hurt you. I'm so sorry this went the way it did. How can I now help you? The choices I made, I feel are important for me. Mm -hmm. And because I'm detached from taking personal responsibility for their pain, mm. I can help them or try to help them. And, and not always could I, but at least I had the sincere and honest attempt to want to help. And they didn't always take it. My, my wife at the time, ex-wife now, didn't really take it that way. But I sincerely and wholeheartedly wished her the best and wanted to help her. And collateral damage, everyone has to take personal responsibility for their feelings mm -hmm. because their feelings are based on their own beliefs, not my beliefs, their beliefs. 
And so I can't control how people are going to respond. I'm not going to be afraid of the outcome. I can't be afraid hmm. of what outcome comes of me living my life. And I can also institute habit, you know, six, respond with love and compassion. Hmm. And so collateral damage is just going to happen. And that's just the way it is. And that's unfortunate. But, but it's kind of a learning um, episode for them as well to learn what's causing them to be upset. What beliefs do they possess to be upset? And that's hopefully they'll learn it, use it as a lesson as well. And if mm -hmm. they don't, then I wish them the best. Is there forgiveness within the imperative habit? Oh, huge forgiveness. You got to <laughs> forgive everybody and everything. That's accepting things for what they are. It's in the past. It's, it's being one. present. Oh my God, you just got to move on. I, I was wronged by so many people that I held grudges for. And I heard a quote that resentment is uh, a poison you take yourself and think it's going to hurt somebody else, right? Right. And it's so true. And, you know, we have these grudges that we hold on to uh, that people mistreat us. And it really just eats away at us. And you got to accept it and move on. I mean, being present. And I, I go in being present is one of the habits. And it's a very complicated um, habit. And I think in Eckhart Tolle's book, Power of Now, mm. incredible book, incredible speaker, incredible orator and thinker, but it really needs a practice. Right. And it really isn't about attention. There's a difference between attention and being present. Mm. And so I think that's, that's a very important distinction that people have to know. And forgiveness is one of those things. Mm. You also talk about in the book what I would describe as an existential crisis between want satisfaction yeah can you talk about that well we ask the question what, what confuses you about that do you have a do you have like <laughs> are you struggling with wants and satisfactions well it, it, well it, when, when I read it it resonated for me because I think I deal a lot probably in the in, in the gray area between want and satisfaction okay. and I don't I don't know if I have the discernment of which is the better. And maybe there is no better. Well, I, I talk about the book as a chapter dedicated to authentic goals. Right. So again, authenticity is a very tough word. And it basically means the you who you don't think you are, you are. You know, we've all been, we've all <laughs> yeah. been programmed to think we're something. I was a football player. I'm a father. I'm a right. divorced parent. I'm, you know, whatever these labels and identities that everyone gives themselves, those show up. Right. Right. Being authentic is... is you know, let's, let's get rid of all that. Authenticity yeah. is the you that just kind of comes out without attaching an identity to your responses. Like, oh, I should respond like a football player, or I should respond like someone who's divorced, or I should respond like an author. When you get rid of those identities, then there's a real authenticity to you. Mm -hmm. Your goals have to be authentic. If your goals are, you know, intended for money or for gain, they're just not going to be as rewarding and they're not going to be sustainable. And so everyone has his goals of making money, but the intention behind it is what makes it either satisfying or not. Or not. If that intention is I need it to be whole or I need it to be happy, then it's not going to make you happy. You're in trouble. If the intention is to make my life easy and I love what I do and it's all good. And I love, again, I love athletes because they're a great resource. You know, a really sincere athlete, like even take like a Tom Brady or Tiger Woods, they don't go into a competition saying I'm only going to play if I'm guaranteed to win right they play because they want to test for skills and they love what they're doing so the outcome doesn't matter and the money doesn't matter if you're playing a sport or a business or an endeavor or a want or a desire 
because mm. you love doing it, then that's the reason to do it. The outcome doesn't really matter. And you have to come to grips with that authenticity of your goals. Because if you're like, hey, I really want to have tons of money because I'll feel really whole and then I'll have a nice car and, and then so-and-so will like me or whatever goes in through your head, that whole line of thinking isn't authentic. Maybe you'll mm. achieve those things. I'm not saying that you won't, but they're going to be different if your goal is, I love this. I love what I'm doing. And whatever falls out from that, great. And so... Understanding that, that authenticity is difficult too. There is another theme in the book that comes up and it's this idea of scarcity. And I loved it because um, I interviewed a woman, her name is Ada Kalak, who's a New York Times bestselling author. She writes uh, mysteries mm. and uh, crime novels, more than mysteries, crime novels set in Texas. And when I interviewed her, she said that she believes that crimes happen because there's this fear there's a belief in scarcity. There's not enough, there's not enough love. There's not enough money. There's not enough resources in the world. And so that creates this paradigm of crime. But that if you really look around, there's an abundance of all of these things. Yeah. And you talk about scarcity in the book. Yeah. Well, all, all of these things are again, you know, spirituality or not spirituality, physical right. or not physical. And and when you believe or choose to believe the world is scarce um people fight they fight over toilet paper yeah i mean when they think that there's not going to be enough <laughs> people really begin to change their behaviors it's like you know rats on the ship you know they're all they're all going and that that's a belief that it's scarce and that belief can modify behavior it can make behavior irrational mm -hmm. and so i'm just advocating that you Come, you, you, you gut check your beliefs, not because it, it might be scarce. I mean, let's say, you know, you're at a festival and they run out of water. Okay. It might be scarce, but it's the belief that it creates fear mm. and it clouds your judgment and it clouds your ability to make effective decisions because mm. the, the book is about, and, and to me, spirituality is about navigating the hazards of life and, and spiritual work and, and the physical world is very paradoxical. Because mm. when one thing seems like, oh, it looks scarce, so it must be scarce. Well, that's just what you see, and that's what you believe. You can still have the knowledge mm. that there might be fewer bottles of water, but not hold the belief of scarcity. Right. And it's about navigating your life and navigating life situations. And again, we have to decide what we believe in. Now, there's so many subtleties to this existence that the book doesn't talk about. There's so many subtleties to the underlying energy that controls all things. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them is intention. And intention has an energy. And if you live a life of scarcity and you truly believe that, that's an emotional energy that you're emitting that, that does have some effect onto what shows up in your well, life. Well, you're creating that scarcity. Absolutely, right. And it's, again, it's back to fear. Fear. Back to fear. I love that you use the word paradox because I don't think we sit in paradox very well. We like absolutes and it seems like the more, the more I live, the more I understand that everything's a paradox and that you're typically deciding between two bad choices or two choices that are not um, self-evident. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, if you, if you really want something, let go of it. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a paradox. If you really right. want something, you have to let go of it. Um, being vulnerable is a paradox. Vulnerability mm -hmm. is a moment of weakness or sharing your weaknesses, and yet it takes the most amount of strength 
to be vulnerable. Mm. And so, so all of these spiritual acts, and, and, it, and it makes complete sense because the body's goal, you know, like, like our lungs are to air and our blood is to our heart, thinking is to our brain. And, and its sole goal is to keep you alive. Right. And that, that goal is a very myopic view towards survival. It's every single second. Mm. And so fear is an essential component to the physical part of our body. But that doesn't actually help us going back to athletics. Right. If I stopped every time lactic acid built up, I never would have been an athlete. I wouldn't have gotten where I, where I went. Right. It takes that other power beyond the body mm. to actually improve the body. And that's a paradox as well. And so our spiritual side, our non-physical side, our higher power, our you know, super conscious, whatever you want to call it, that goes in an opposite direction than the body. Because sometimes to our body, things are assumed to be distinctively needed for survival when in fact they're not. Right. That's the challenge, right? The challenge. Override the body. Make, make good choices over then program behavior. That's the pause. Or That's the, the pause. The, the Victor Frankl. Right. Find that small moment in, moment time, in time between stimulus and response. And I use this example. And never, this never hit me more clear than seeing my nephew and my daughter, they're the same age, they were six years old, and we're standing on a bridge in Oregon and we're gonna jump off this bridge into this river. Mm -hmm. They're both the same swimmers. And I get up and I jump, my daughter gets off and she jumps, the other kids jump, and there's my nephew, riddled with fear. He's like, I'm not doing it. Right, not doing it, not doing it. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So the question is, he has the thought of danger and the emotion of fear. The question is, is it dangerous? Mm. It doesn't matter. He thinks it is. Yeah, it is. And my daughter doesn't. Yeah. And the difference is programming. My daughter has always seen me do this, and my brother's a lot more conservative than I am, and he didn't take his kid on these excursions. Mm. And so you saw programming between two individuals that were the same level of submerged, the same age, same bridge, same distance to water, and that programming changed their behavior. Froze his muscles, he sweat, sweating, he was agitated. All the pictures that day, he's like looking down and feeling defeated and my daughter's like smiling and having fun. And it was really you know, disappointing to see that that programming affected his behavior and his, and his outlook. And mm. scarcity kind of does the same thing. It affects your behavior. Can you talk about the relationship and maybe the difference between love and loss, which you say really you felt acutely when your friend Dave yeah. passed away. Yeah. And secrets, because you didn't know that he was an alcoholic. I didn't know, no. I mean, I think for, for a lot of us, we viewed love as between, you know, um, significant others. Right. We viewed love as between partners. We viewed love- Or sex. Or, or sex, or we viewed love as things that we could share with somebody and they didn't betray our, our vulnerabilities. And, and then when we felt safe, that's love, you know? And I think losing Dave, who again was, was such a close friend of mine, he was, he was you know, more than my parents to me, he was someone I ever, ever, only thought ever really knew me. Mm. And so that loss to me really put a, a different perspective on what love is. And then missing him so much and feeling so much loss, and there wasn't a relationship of sex or, or anything like two partners share, but it was this friendship and it was this, mm relationship that went beyond you know what we experience we think love is and i think that changed a lot for me to realize that love is truly inside of us and if you expect somebody else 
to give you love, then I think that's a mistake. Because love is endless and love is inside of you and love is always there. And you can share love and you can give love and you don't lose it. It's like an endless thing to give. And it doesn't get magically created when you mix the blue and the red and you get, you know, green. I mean, we're talking about something that's always there. And again, it's back to those external things. When you have external things that you think make you whole, then you're always looking for external things. And when you realize you have it already inside of you, now these are tough things because people confuse loneliness and camaraderie and chemistry and all these other body hormone functions, which you can get lots of different ways, you know, and your brain is endlessly good at tricking you into thinking you're in love because mm-hmm. it feels really great and it's really a lot of hormones and it's hitting all of your pleasure centers because you were programmed to like this or that. And then two years later, you're like, what was I thinking? Right. And so when you, when you try to pull away from the body and, and use those signals of hormonal release and neurotransmitters as an opportunity to understand what you believe, then you're able to make different choices. Mm. If you thought you were eternally loved. I mean, if you in your heart knew you were loved, I mean, there's just no question. You look in the mirror, I am loved, and you breathe that. Think of the different decisions you would make with Mm -hmm. your partners. Think about how you would choose if you eternally felt loved and you didn't think you needed it from somebody else. You would make different choices. Well, there's no fear in that equation. Right. There's no fear of loss. There's no fear of I need this. There's no fear of camaraderie. And, And solitude or loneliness becomes... Just a moment that you just think is is just the present moment and it's not going to last and it will move in a second. Mm. And there's confidence that comes. That's that faith again. You have faith. What was your inflection point? I've, I've asked the people we've talked to what the inflection point for their joy of living, joy of health, that moment. What that moment was for them and how their life changed after that Inflection I think for me coming to realization that I was living Leo Tolstoy's life was was huge. Just to know that mm-hmm. I actually had an answer came to me that it eluded me for so long that there's something so much bigger that I had been taught my whole life. And to realize that that I was living the life of everybody else mm-hmm. and afraid of the outcome. And just to know that I was doing that created so many answers for me that there was so much hope now. I felt so free. I felt so light. I felt like nothing could get me down because I knew I'd shifted as, as, as Wayne Dyer would call it. There was a shift. Yeah. And the world suddenly turned to color where it had been black and white. And I didn't know there was even a distinction until you do it. Mm. And when that happened, when I saw all these answers just begin to open like a flower or a, or a lotus is when I realized, wow, there's so much more to this. I don't have to... And, that, and then that quote that Eckhart Tolle said that we suffer for one reason and that's to, to teach us that we no longer need to suffer. And you'll, wow. suffer, you'll suffer enough, you'll suffer long enough until you realize that. And I had hit that point. And then I realized that I don't need to suffer anymore. It's fatigue in a certain way, right? It, you just it, get yeah, tired. Yeah. And that fatigue turned to desire. It turned to research. It turned to exploration. And it turned to surrender in a way because mm-hmm. you really have to open your heart and open your mind to new concepts and fall to your knees in vulnerability saying, I can't do this alone. And I'm really open to the answers. So. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed being here. It was great. This is a great book. So 
I'll have to read it again. <laughs> well, and you say to read it again. I say read everything again. I mean, I've read, I've read every book. Like, I can't tell you how many times. And every time I read the book that I've already read, I'd say, there's no way that was in this book the first four I times I read it. I mean, this is five. How did I miss this four times? And, you know, context creates comprehension. So when you gain more and more context with more and more books and more and more practice and more and more evolution, everything becomes different. Mm. So read all the books you've ever read. More yes, than once. again, again. Yeah. All right, Dave, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. All right, thanks.